up, warbling stars reveal their vital statistics. Ah, the unmistakable growl of a dwarf. And plants use electrical signals to be quick off the mark. It's essentially something I'd recommend for people to almost try as garage biology. You basically use little silver electrodes spaced along the leaf, and if we have two or three electrodes, we can start to measure the speed of the signal going through the plant. Plus, making babies from skin cells. This is the Nature Podcast for August the twenty second, twenty thirteen. I'm Kerry Smith, and I'm Charlotte Stoddart. this week, sperm and egg cells have been created in the lab. Ewan Calloway explores the implications for fertility treatments and fundamental science. In a laboratory in Kyoto, Japan, there's a mouse with a skin cell for a parent. Over the last few years, a team of researchers there has figured out how to transform skin cells called fibroblasts into primordial germ cells, the precursors of egg or sperm. Last year, they produced live, healthy mice using those reprogrammed cells with in vitro fertilization techniques. If the technique could be adapted to humans, it could offer infertile couples and same-sex couples a way to conceive biological children with genetic material from both partners. So it's not surprising, perhaps, that the scientist leading this work, Katsuhiku Hayashi, has received a lot of letters from people desperate to have their own children. Hayashi has to tell them that it's going to be a long wait. In case of infertile couples, I just said um, this takes probably a long time to uh, make a human sperm and egg. His efforts have got people thinking about the technical and ethical challenges of creating babies from skin cells. Here's one of those people. Deborah Matthews, a geneticist and bioethicist at Johns Hopkins University, says it would be hard for male cells, which have an X and a Y chromosome, to make eggs and perhaps impossible for female cells with two Xs to produce sperm. The egg is an incredibly complex cell, right? The sperm, no offense to the men out there, is sort of a, a bag of DNA with a tail, whereas a egg, an oocyte, is a very large, very complex cell. And figuring out how to build that kind of complex cell that can support early embryonic growth is quite complicated. Uh, to do the, the inverse, which is to take an XX cell or chromosomally female cells and make sperm is likely to be even more difficult, if not impossible, because XX cells, by definition, lack a Y lack of Y chromosome. And instructions that you need for building a sperm exist on the Y chromosome. But let's speculate for a moment. If those technical challenges could be overcome and the techniques are proven safe, there's no reason not to apply the technology to infertile and same-sex couples. That's according to Josephine Johnston at the Hastings Center, a bioethics think tank in New York. There are already thousands of same-sex couples in New York State alone who have children, um, some of whom they have a biological link with and some of whom they don't, and it, it sort of seems to me like it doesn't matter. There is surely some enduring prejudice against those families, um, but everything that's going on here right now is moving towards trying to sort of combat that prejudice. So I, I don't see specific barriers in that regard. Hayashi's team is now trying to repeat their work in monkeys, more closely related to humans than mice. If the work can be translated to humans eventually, 
Deborah Matthews wants to see it regulated before it's too late. If this is the direction we are going, which it almost certainly is, oversight structures need to be in place prior to the first use in humans. You know, stem cell science has had already a struggle with people going overseas to get quote-unquote stem cell treatments. And I would hate for that to happen in this context with uh, an as-yet unproven technology. Hayashi's work isn't just creating ethical dilemmas. It may solve some as well. Stem cell researchers who want to study the basic biology of reproduction find it extremely difficult to obtain human egg cells. It's illegal to pay for them in many countries, and they must rely on egg donations, which can be difficult and painful for donors. Deborah Matthews says Hayashi's work could help address this shortage. Women with the quote-unquote right characteristics, you know, high IQs, athletic ability, etc., get paid tens of thousands of dollars for their eggs in the context of reproduction. But in the context of research, uh, where the potential outcome of the use of those eggs is much more uncertain, um, there have been tremendous debates about whether or not we ought to pay women. So the way that plays in here, I think, is that you know, as we get closer to being able to create pluripotent stem cell-derived eggs in humans, the concerns about the use of human eggs in other areas of this research may diminish a bit. All of which could advance the cause closest to Hayashi's heart, the basic science of cell development. Ultimately, his team wants to create human primordial germ cells to help scientists understand the biology of infertility. The uh, purpose of this work is not only for making a sperm and egg, but also for the kind of understanding the, the mechanism of germ cell development, which probably lead us to uh, find some genes or factors causing the uh, infertility. Katsuhiko Hayashi ending that report from Ewan Calloway. Read more on creating sperm and egg cells in David Sirinoski's feature. That's at nature.com forward slash news. Coming up in the research highlights, head-banging termites and shipwrecks in icy waters. Before that, though, some electrifying news from the plant kingdom. Plants display an impressive array of defence mechanisms against the persistent chomping of herbivores. Many of these are permanent features, like toxic chemicals and razor-sharp thorns. But some plants also have an on-demand response to being eaten, which kickstarts preventative measures in distant parts of the plant. Genes turn on and the plant launches a chemical defence. The question is, how do they send these long-range signals? Animals transmit messages at great speed from one part of the body to another using nerves. But even without a nervous system, plants can use electrical signalling. And that could be the key to their all-over defence. Edward Farmer from the University of Lausanne and his team wired and wounded a plant to find out. Jeff Marsh gave Edward a call. Now, it's fair to say, isn't it, that plants live at a slower pace than animals? That's true in most respects. I mean, there are, at the molecular level, some very fast events. But in terms of long-distance signalling, they seem to live at a lower pace, yeah. But there are a few celebrity carnivorous plants, aren't there, like the Venus flytrap, that make a mockery of this distinction between plants and animals? That's true. The Venus flytrap, of course, wonderful plant, very, very fast. 
the fly takeoff time takes perhaps about 300 milliseconds and the trap can close in 100 milliseconds. It's a a wonderful plant. Okay, uh, but whilst catching flies is a very cool thing for plants to do, the threat posed by herbivores, on the other hand, is much more widespread, isn't it, amongst the plants? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that all leaves have co-evolved with herbivores. The leaf has a fantastic defense capacity. They look completely inert and, and we don't see what's going on when they're attacked. But there's all sorts going on at the molecular level and, and all sorts of defenses that are preformed in the leaves. OK, so why don't you tell me then what happens to a plant when it starts to get munched? Well, supposing the insect is a chewing insect, it bites through the entire leaf There are interesting events taking place at the cut surface itself. There's chemical interaction between the plant and the insect. The insect has oral secretions and it's trying to minimize the response of the plant. The plant, on the other hand, needs to detect the insect and starts to send signals into the lamina. Once they arrive in the different cells in the leaf, they turn on defense genes through a signal pathway that's becoming quite well known now. And when those genes turn on, they make proteins that act as anti-digestive proteins in the stomach of the herbivore and uh, in some cases really do poison the herbivore. Right, so there's this defence response mounted locally where the herbivore's teeth are sort of mashing through the flesh but it also gets transmitted to distant locations in the plant. That's right, that's interested us a lot in the last years because um, in a fairly mature plant, uh, obviously one insect feeding isn't going to necessarily affect the whole response of the plant. Imagine an insect feeding on an oak tree. It's not going to affect the whole of the oak tree. But just how far does the signal extend? Where does it go is interesting. And that's what we've studied in Arabidopsis. It's a little tiny plant that grows as a rosette. So there's a territory, a domain uh, in which defense reactions take place very strongly in response to that that single wound. And that defence response itself is orchestrated mainly by a plant hormone with the beautiful name of jasminate. That's right, yeah. It's named because it's a constituent of, of jasmine flower perfume, but it's actually made in all plants, but not as a perfume form. It's made as a non-volatile form that's then activated in plants, and then it turns on defense genes in this territory of the plant in these leaves that respond to the initial wound. Okay, but your main thrust in this paper was to actually prove the hypothesis that it was indeed electrical signaling that was transmitting these messages. That's absolutely right. When we started this work, we realized that there was only a correlation between electrical signaling and turning on the jasminate pathway and the defense response. And the only way you can really do it in the system is through genetics. And that came in later in the project where we were able to find mutants that that affected the electrical signaling. And those mutants stopped the plant responding properly in distal leaves. How exactly did you measure these electrical signals across the different regions of the plant? It's essentially something I'd recommend for people to almost try as garage biology. You basically use little silver electrodes spaced along the leaf that's wounded or spaced along other leaves that are not wounded and then wound the plant and we can we can detect changes in electrical field along the leaf and if we have two or three electrodes we can start to measure the speed of the signal going through the plant. And how did that compare to say the electrical signals in in an animal? On the whole it's slow but nature never does things faster than it needs to and it's obviously fast enough for the plant. The speed that we've measured is roughly the speed of a walking herbivore, I'd say. It's, it's between 3 to 8 centimetres per minute. 
And so what do you think about where the signal is being transmitted? Are there specialized tissues or cells? The consensus at the moment is that it goes through the phloem, which is a truly remarkable tissue made of two cell types. However, we don't really know that. It's, it's going to be fun to, to look at that. And the receptors that you found to be part of this signaling are very similar to a class of receptors found in vertebrates. So they may be older than the last common ancestor of plants and animals. This is an interesting possibility, and they don't have a sole function in all animals. In insects, for example, these, these similar types of receptors have been taken, and they're used in the odorant detection, whereas in us, they're in our synapses, and they work in the nerves, but they're in a very different context in the plant, so we'll have to see how they work there exactly in this, in this type of signal propagation. That was Edward Farmer talking to Jeff Marsh. More at nature.com nature. Soon, the chattering of stars reveals their vital statistics. But first, it's the research highlights. Here's Noah Baker. Termites use their heads, literally, to drum up support when their nest is attacked. When a team from Germany mimicked attacks on termite nests, soldier termites responded by drumming their heads rapidly against the ground 11 times a second. The vibrations drew more soldiers to the site, but only ones that were nearby. To spread the signal further, the termites play the equivalent of Chinese whispers, passing the message from termite to termite. Pick up the Journal of Experimental Biology for more. Ships that sink in icy waters may stay very well preserved. That's according to a study that dropped planks of wood and whale bones onto the Antarctic seafloor to see if anything ate them. The water is too cold for wood-eating creatures often found in warmer seas. In contrast, the whale bones were infested with two new species of bone-munching worms, Osidax antarcticus and Osidax decepcionensis. Bad news for whale carcasses, but great news for marine archaeologists. The Antarctic ocean floor has gathered a few gems, including the wreck of Ernest Shackleton's Endurance, which sank in 1915. The paper is in Proceedings of the Royal Society B. listening to the nature podcast that eerie sound is a dwarf star a small star that's spinning quickly a bit like our sun from that sound scientists can work out the diameter of the star and so what stage it's at in its evolution from dwarf to giant the sound represents changes in the star's brightness detected by the kepler space telescope The changes are caused by two things, star spots, large, dark, cool regions, and something called granulation at the surface of the star. Author Kivan Stassen first explained what he means by granulation. It's very similar to what you see when you watch the surface of a pot of water boiling. Uh, The water is roiling and churning because of upwelling hot water uh, that rises to the surface and then falls back down. That motion of upwelling hot gas and then descending cool gas that we call granulation, that is what we then observe with the exquisite sensitivity of the Kepler satellite as light flickering. Can you give us an idea of the time scale? Yes, you've put your finger on a very important uh, question that ties into the discovery here. So the, the time scale of the granulation on the surfaces of stars, and therefore the time scale of the light flickering caused by that granulation, 
depends on the size or the evolutionary state of the star. For a star like the Sun, uh, which we call a dwarf star, it's an unevolved star, the time scale of the granulation is about 5 to 10 minutes. Whereas, for a very evolved red giant star, the time scale is more like several hours. Okay, so let's have another listen to that sound. Um, this is the sound then of a, a red dwarf, I think. So that this is a sun-like star. Yes, basically that's what our sun might sound like, and that's the sound of the star spot uh, rotating around as the star spins. Uh, but you notice the quality of the sound, if you will, uh, is very good. There's very little hiss present. And that's because the granulation flicker signal from, the, from this star is, uh, is almost absent. It's very, very quiet in that regard. Okay, so let's compare that now with a red giant, a star at the sort of opposite evolutionary spectrum. This star presumably started out as a star very similar to our sun, uh, but is now ending its life. It has swelled in size enormously. Consequently, the star spins very slowly, almost not at all. Its surface also uh, has, uh, probably has almost no star spots on it, n nothing like the sunspots that we see on our sun. And because the star is so large, the granules are enormous, and they churn very slowly. And so what you hear is simply the, the hiss, the random variations caused by the random churning and boiling of those large granules on the red giant star. This is obviously really cool, but it seems like a very roundabout way of learning about a star's properties. Are there not easier ways to work out how big a star is, what kind of star it is? Ah, yes. I would say that there are certainly more direct ways of learning about the uh, evolutionary state of the star, uh, but but in fact those more direct ways are are by no means easier. In fact, they're they're quite hard. <laughs> so uh, the gold standard is through a technique called asteroseismology, and that's where uh, we analyze in in fine detail all of the various frequencies. Uh, of variation that are present in the light signal from a star. The problem is, it really can only be done on, on a relatively small number of very bright stars for which we can collect a very, very bright light signal. The Kepler Space Telescope, which, which is where you got your data from, um, its main mission is searching for exoplanets, um, planets outside of our solar system. Is this going to help with that mission? Yes, indeed. What we can now do is determine the, the age and the diameter of a very large number of stars with high precision. And that, in turn, directly improves our ability to determine the physical properties of planets that may be found around these stars. And the reason for that is that when we find exoplanets that transit or pass in front of their host stars, 
all of the physical properties of that planet are inferred in relation to the physical properties that we assume for the host star. So it's critically important that we have as precise a measure as possible of the diameter, the density, the age of the host star in order to then determine those properties for the planets. Kivan Stassen, and no, he wasn't talking to us from the surface of a red giant, that hiss is just the air conditioning in his office at Vanderbilt University in the US. Finally this week, it's news time and Rosie Mestel joins us. First with a story of how expensive or not it is to be a researcher. One of the expenses, of course, of doing science is reading all the papers that people charge for. But in fact, half of the papers published in 2011, it turns out, are free to read online. Yeah, well, that's what uh, a group found who did a study for the European Commission. Um, the the half figure is a little bit uh, surprising, and some uh, scholars think that it could be uh, less than that, in fact. But so generally there's been a steady move over the past few years towards getting research papers that are funded by government money into the public domain. And before this uh, report, which came out on the 21st of August and was – um, produced for the European Commission, the estimates were that the proportion of papers free online run at around 30%. But people who did this most recent study, who are at Science Metrics, a consultancy in Montreal in Canada, say that these are underestimates. And how do they account for the difference then? Because the 30% is probably people assuming that you know, government-funded papers are available online for free, but where else are people getting them from? Well, apparently uh, people are going to a whole load of uh, other places. Um, there's uh, There are repositories such as Archive and PubMed Central. There are sites such as ResearchGate, a sort of Facebook for scientists. So when studies are done just looking at what is available at journal websites, they come out lower then when, when people just say go in and Google and um, not everybody agrees with that these uh, estimates are accurate. But but what isn't in dispute is the fact that the, the number of uh, papers that are uh, going to be free online is going to go up. That's where the trend is. The European Commission has said that from 2014, the results of all research funded by the EU must be open access. And the U.S. White House said in February that government-funded research should be made free to read within 12 months of publication. So from finding the gaps and finding these papers hidden away in little holes to some other loopholes, this time in the GM crop regulation in the States. Yeah, uh, genetically modified crops in the United States are regulated um, according to a bunch of very old laws that don't always fit them. And one of the agencies that regulates some of the crops is the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and it has turned to the Plant Pest Act of 1957 to regulate GM crops. And so if anybody uses a plant pest, bacterium, a virus, or whatever, or DNA from a plant pest in the creation of their GM crops, the USDA has said, well then we regulate you. But um, there are ways to get around using plant pests. Some of them 
are based on old methods, some of them are based on new methods, and increasingly researchers are turning to these. And this actually offers some hope to groups who might be interested in, in trying to engineer improvements in crops that are more niche and wouldn't be the ones that would be tackled by the big uh, biotech, plant biotech companies. So let me get this straight then. The USDA, the US Department of Agriculture, only regulates GM crops that use, as you say, these plant pests. Either you've used a virus to get the gene in there or the gene is from a bacterium or something like that. Well, the uh, the traditional way that uh, for a long time GM uh, crops were engineered it was by using a bacterium called agrobacterium to get the DNA in. But there are other ways to go. For instance, there's an old method in which you use a gene gun. And if you use a gene gun, then you're not uh, involving agrobacterium. In addition, there are other new methods in which you can precisely change the sequences of DNA without using agrobacterium. So that's one thing. The other thing is if you take your genes from not a bacterium or the promoter that would regulate that gene, not from a virus, not from a uh, bacterium, uh, but say you use a plant gene, you, p- you combine all these methods together and you end up with something that hasn't seen a plant pest. It could be good news then for smaller companies who can't afford perhaps to fight these regulatory battles with the USDA. But are there any dangers to doing this? Well, um, not everybody thinks this is a good idea. There are some people who argue that even though the methods may be more precise in some cases, you don't get away uh, from the problem of public perception and fear uh, suspicion if you somehow circumvent regulation you may not be wooing the public to accept your products. Thanks, Rosie. Great to have you with us. Check out the news site nature.com slash news for more on all those stories. That's it for this week. Next time, metaphor in science, a ray of sunlight or a damp squib. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Charlotte Stoddart. Stoddart.